the older baldy Jeff is my younger baldy Jake father. Just in case you didn't know, a lot of people think we're brothers, and that may be true in a partnership sense, but he's still my dad. In a very real and legally binding manner. My dad. dad. Yes, and if you got that reference, then I'm sure you got a grin on your face. And if you didn't get that reference, you went, man, those guys are weird. It's true. Well, that's a general truth. It is a, it's a generalized truth and should have been part of our disclosure. We're weird. Once more into the weeds, dear friends. Let's tie the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach, where we may be heard to say economic tendencies are monetarily based, or some such um, eco babble. Right? It's a different kind of eco than most. So we're eco warriors, but it's econ warriors. Just why we put the end on there? We're very green. It's just a different kind of green. That's the risk. We're we're activists. That's that's where we are. Activists for the green side um, of the e econ. <laughs> um, there's, that's more, I guess, disclosure we should have put at the beginning, that we are econ warriors. Uh, when we put our wings together and unite to form Captain Money. No, no, that's not it. Getting off into nonsense now. We have a lot more to talk to you about. Um, talking about, we, we spent the majority of the last hour talking about a big shift that's occurring in the economy and a big shift in the global economy and how this is a completely different time than what we experienced in the preceding period of time. And I'm going to bring up some other pieces of the cycle, the longer term cycle here now, if you don't mind. Um, if we look at the big tech companies today, and everybody talks about big tech. Big tech's doing layoffs. Big tech's doing... Most of the big tech was introduced to us 20 years ago. Amazon, Google, uh, and they didn't become big tech until right around the Great Recession, 2007, 2008. This includes Apple, by the way. Apple wasn't not big tech. It had just been big tech from the 80s up through the 90s, but was in the middle of a massive decline and almost a destruction of the company in the early part of the 21st century. And it picked up at the same time as Google and the rest. Microsoft never really fell down. So it's it's the only big tech company that's still big tech that's been around for a long time. If you think of who big tech was in 2006, it was IBM and Lenovo and Dell. And you have this list of equipment. Microsoft was in there and Apple was falling quickly down the list as Dell and IBM and the others were getting bigger. So, when we say big tech, then we were talking about new big tech that had started within the last 20 years. We have a completely different new big tech now, mostly that it started in the last 20 years. This is a cycle, and generally speaking, it's a recession during this time period or a downturn during this time period where big tech does massive layoffs, then you get the germs if there's enough people around that are bored, that are laid off. You get the germs that grow into the new big tech. 
And it's likely that we had some of that occur during the pandemic, and likely it's positive that we did. We had business formation like we haven't seen for decades and decades. But then with the demand from big tech and the rest to hire people up, we had this weeble wobble effect. Traditionally in the United States, going back to the beginning, small businesses have been the majority employer, not the big businesses. In most of Europe, that's the other way around. In, in, certainly in China, it's the other way around. Um, small businesses innovate better. They, they change faster. They're much more flexible and they're much more motivated. Uh, it's really hard to change the direction of IBM because they've got 87 different sources of profit, and, and that's a number I made up. And they have a lot of sources of profit. Some of them are very profitable and some of them aren't. But if the CEO says, today IBM will do this, it's so many different things that you can't do it anymore. It doesn't just shift the whole company quickly, whereas a small business can say, hey, today we're out of windows and we're into doors. And you can do it within a month. So that's, that's innovation. In the, the lead up to the pandemic, 2019, we saw a weird thing happen. Large businesses were the primary employers in the United States. It was a big shift. Then the pandemic hit, and it became smaller businesses became the largest employers in the United States. They employed more than the big businesses. And we're still in that middle of that weaver. We don't know what's coming out of this, but it would be a lot better for us as a nation to make sure that we continue to motivate small businesses to grow while big businesses are laying off. So this concept hopefully means that the big tech that's laying off today is inspiring the big tech of 20 years from now to be born. Uh, and that's a, that's a cycle that we see pretty regularly. If you think about Apple coming back into full force, they introduced the iPhone in the middle of the Great Recession. Usually you don't want to introduce a new tech product in the time when everybody's been laid off and people have debts that they can't pay and so on. But it was new enough and cool enough that everybody bought it anyway. That's the advent of the smartphones. So the technology and the innovations that will be big in 20 years that will be bringing on the carpet in front of Congress to chew them out is likely being born today. And if you go back 20 years and you think about how we thought of Google and when Tesla was formed, how we thought of Tesla or Facebook and you know the movies that we made about these people, we put them on massive pedestals because they're young and they're brilliant and they're changing the world. And 20 years later, they're not young anymore. <laughs> they're still, people are still like, they're brilliant, but now they're very profit motivated. So the whole kind of paradigm shifts in this cycle. And it's a behavioral cycle. It's a one of awareness of what it is we want to buy and why we want to buy it. So just know that's where we are in the cycle. We have matured a whole bunch of technology. So this year, smartphones. Uh, how many companies are making them? Well, it's not just one anymore. There's quite a number of them. Well, that means that they must be uh, differentiating each from each other very clearly. You can pick up one and tell it's a different one from the... No, it's been commoditized. It means that m people, when they go to buy a cell phone, and this doesn't, this doesn't apply to Apple as much because Apple has done a really good job of putting a big lock on their door. It's really hard to leave Apple. 
they call it being sticky, but there have been lawsuits about it at this point because they've done some pretty predatory things. This is the period where that occurs. At this point in the early 2000s in this cycle, it was Microsoft that was buying a bunch of unvoting shares. It wasn't Microsoft. It was Bill Gates that was bought $200 million of unvoting shares, non-voting shares of Apple so that Microsoft didn't get ripped apart by the Justice Department for being a, a, a monopoly. And that's what inspired them to hire Steve Jobs back. They could afford him after that because Bill Gates gave him a bunch of money that he doesn't have any control of the company with. So they hired back Steve Jobs, they made the iPods, they made the iPads, they made the iPhones, and they just kind of ballooned after that. Now they're back as a big company. Now we're looking at Google and saying, maybe we should bust up Google. Because look, they're, but then right in the middle of this Justice Department getting ready to go into Google and saying everybody's using Google, AI is being introduced by Microsoft on Bing. That will make their search engine better. And it does. It makes it better. And I could clearly say Google was better than Yahoo in search results. And so they took over from Yahoo. Well, Bing, which has been a joke, I mean, it's been an absolute joke as a search engine for a long time. It's suddenly better than Google because they're using machine learning to connect and Google was someone that introduced all of the research that allowed Microsoft to do it. They released their research three years ago and all of the big AI innovations is based on the research that Google did and Google may be just about to lose its crown as the top search engine if Microsoft doesn't put too many stupid ads on the page. We'll see. So the, all of this is when things get so big that they can't expand anymore, you fill the niche, whether that's because everybody's got four computers or you don't need to buy a new cell phone this year and you go why would I spend a thousand or twelve hundred bucks on a cell phone when this thing actually works pretty well I don't have any problem with it that's when the growth cycle ends and they start maturing into something other than growth no memo goes out but that's kind of what's occurring here Apple isn't necessarily a growth company anymore unless they can come up with something completely new again it's not necessarily a growth company what is microsoft doing to still stay up top to try to be close to the top well they did something new cloud computing google's doing that too so is amazon amazon's making more money off of its cloud computing than off of selling stuff to you on Amazon. Microsoft is making more off of its cloud computing than selling you Office and Windows. So that's the shift that's occurred there. They said, whoa, we gotta go over here. Apple's got iCloud, but they're still trying to figure out how to make that work in a business setting because it's got such a big lock on it and you can only use Apple stuff with it. So there's, there's all kinds of interesting facets here. New technology is coming out, and it's improving existing large tech. But the seeds of the new stuff should be right now. We should start to see something else coming up. Uh, don't know what it is yet. When we do, it's probably not going to be the right thing that we know because they'll introduce some technology and we say, this is going to change the world, and somehow it flops. So whatever it is that comes out next is starting now. Just put a little bookmark in your mind for 20 years from now if you can put enough importance on this weird bald guy talking to you on AM radio as if technology
technology hasn't proceeded from there uh, to try and miraculously is on the on the rise. Uh, there, that was self-deprecating enough, don't you think? I think it was. Yeah, I think it'll do it just something better comes along. So that's just an update on where we are in the business cycle, which is fascinating to me. And now we're talking about other stuff. I'm going to move it over to you and have you well talk about the things you want to talk about. There's, there's something worth looking at strategically. I think, which is, I think we. At least I tend to lose perspective about what's going on in the headlines uh, today in the Wall Street Journal. Wait, wait, wait. Before we go any further, Roger emailed back. Last hour, he caught you on saying, remove cover before striking. And he said, it's, it is it is not that. It is it is uh, closed cover before striking. Yes, we mentioned that last time. And he said, on further consideration, this might be a SEC reportable incident as it is incendiary. You have an incendiary statement there. I think so. Yeah, I, I think well, no, it's it's an anti-incendiary statement. Except the move cover would be incendiary. Well, that depends on what you're striking. You're, you're doing the opposite. It, it's like uh, coffee may be hot. Please place face in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Roger. Um, we're, we're going to issue a somebody is listening. Yeah, we will issue a press release sometime in the next thousand years. Um, as soon as we find find the right way to do it. If we ever do find the right way to do it, issuing an apology for uh, the misstatement of removing cover before striking, because it's very important and we don't wish to be canceled. Thank you. Right. Okay. Now back to you. The Wall Street Journal had an article, and I really enjoyed it. Would it be cancel culture? It is. It is, and that's what I, antibiotics is exactly cancel cancel culture. Just, and, and doctors will understand that. One of the things that. Uh, Headline in the Wall Street Journal was a quote, and I quote, the collapse of the government of Moldova, which is headlines in the Wall Street Journal, which is sort of interesting because the Wall Street Journal is primarily published in the United States. And I would make an estimate that over 95% of the people in the United States, if you ask them where Moldova was, <laughs> what continent Moldova was on, <laughs> It's true. Then they wouldn't know. Uh, so it's near Greece, so it must be in Africa, right? That, that, that's an old Jay Leno reference. If you could find Moldova on the map. Um, oh, it's Australia, right? No, no. no. <laughs> well, it's not a massive nation in Africa, so I doubt it's very close. But it is, it, is, it is a small nation in Eastern Europe that used to be a Soviet republic. And it doesn't border Russia. It, in fact, borders Ukraine. And Poland, it, on the other side. It is, it is not a particularly important place, except for the fact that recently... It's, it's got a population of just over 2 million, which is two Austins. Right. So it's not a big mover and shaker in the world scene. It is. It's truly an interesting place. But the, the, the key is that recently there were intelligence reports saying that the um, Russian was, Russia was intentionally destabilizing Moldova, and the fact that the prime minister resigned um, and recommended somebody else be appointed prime minister because of the fact that their government is not working well made headlines. Now, why is it important? Uh, why am I bringing it up? First off, I'm not completely sure why it's in the headlines. It isn't that big a thing. It wasn't like they don't have a government anymore. They are, <clears throat> first off, they are pro-Western. Secondly, they are a democratic republic. And, and therein, obviously, is the key. There, there is another little piece here. What's that? They have a strip on their eastern border between Moldova and Ukraine called Trans.
Transnistra. It's an unrecognized republic by the majority of the planet, except Russia believes it's there, and Russian troops are stationed all in it. Now, it's been a separatist republic since Moldova's birth from the Soviet Union. So it's not like Georgia where the where the Russians really instigated and said, no, this is part of Russia. Or it's not like Eastern Ukraine, where they're recently coming in after Yeltsin and Clinton uh, had these big signatures saying, yes, Ukraine is a, is a valid nation. This is goes way back. But that means that right on the western border of Ukraine, there's a Russian president, presence. And Moldova is influenced strongly by Russia. It's a western-meaning government. So it's, it's, it's also just been... Uh, introduced as a candidate status for the EU, just like Ukraine was. So this is why it's important, is because it's important for the mix, the power mix in Europe. It's not that important for the rest of the world. Anyway, back to you. Sorry. Well, what I wanted to suggest, and it has nothing to do with what you were just talking about, I recognize Transnistria for what it is, uh, although I'm curious how the Russians are getting troops to and from Transnistria, it's, it, it, they, were doing it, they were doing it by rail through Ukraine until they invaded Ukraine, and the Ukrainians, for some reason, wouldn't let them ship arms and equipment. Now they're doing it this by is, rail. But this is, well, there's no ocean. Well, it's not like this. There's no easy way to get to. They fly from the ocean on the south end. There's a tiny, narrow, little piece that borders Ukraine that comes down to the sea. Anyway, that, that's irrelevant for ge geography of, of the world. You and I, you're going somewhere else with this. Well, actually, the map I'm looking at doesn't, it ever makes it to the ocean. They would have to cross, never mind, I will, they would have to cross part of Ukraine that they don't occupy to get there, which is an interesting concept. That's not what I was talking about. That has nothing to do with what I was talking about. But it's interesting about. nonetheless. Yes. Okay, so go ahead. If you go to Google and you put in Moldova, which is spelled M-O-L-D-O-V-A, it comes up and there'll be a map up here on the right side in, in Google. And if you expand that map and you can see the borders, there's some interesting things that sort of jump out at you at that point. And it has nothing to do with Moldova. It has to do with the fact that if you knew where the borderline between the Warsaw Pact countries that were effectively occupied by and controlled by um, Russia as the Soviet Union, and the countries that were democratic republics in the western part of Europe. That's kind of the thing that jumps out at me. At that point, Europe, democratic Europe, the, the, the NATO part of Europe, and other countries that were democracies, was about 2,000 meters from east to west. Not 2,000 meters, 2,000 kilometers from east to west. If you look now, how far democracy and western-oriented thought and government, when I say Western-oriented, oriented on the concept of what we call freedom and democracy that the United States pioneered in the, in the 18th century, you will discover that the width of Europe has doubled to about 4,000 kilometers, which in the case of Estonia and Ukraine, bring it within about 500 kilometers of Moscow. It helps to recognize how it must look if you are an authoritarian, autocratic government who is afraid of democracy and thinks democracy is the enemy, to realize that the area in Europe that is democratic, that is what we refer to as the free world, has doubled in size since 1999. And they're closing in on an autocratic, dictatorial government. And the paranoia that has to strike at that point 
Africa must be overwhelming. Huge change has occurred. Nothing that anyone has probably ancient history has done people's not to me. A huge change has occurred in the world since 1991. And it's, we don't see much about it because it's on the other side of the world and it's no big thing. But a huge expansion of what I want to refer to as the American form of government. When I say the American form of government, when in 1776 when we started it again, in, uh, in, the, in 1789 we got our constitution, we were a unique country in the world in that we were literally governed as a democratic representative government. We are the oldest such government on the planet, the first government to do that. We still have the same constitution we, we created in, I think it was 1789, was maybe off by a year or two. Our way of thinking has become dominant through most of the world, most of the, at the time, I would say, developed world. And therein is the dividing line between what is and what was and what will be coming forward. There is a clear set of um, standards that reminds me very, very much of the lead-up to World War One. World War One was called the war to make the world safe for democracy. It's still going on, in effect, in that democratically, free democratically elected governments are in part of the world, and there's other parts of the world that pay lip service to that, and they go through the motions of doing it, uh, like Russia and China, but in fact are autocracies where there's a small group of people, or a single person in some cases, who runs the show. That conflict has been a continuous conflict since the beginning of the 20th century, and it's about 100 years ago, there was a big war about it, and the war in various forms has reoccurred and reoccurred. And it is literally what we are looking at today on a very global scale, is this fundamental difference in philosophy, almost in religion, between democratically elected representative government and autocracies where a small group of people control everybody. Or in some cases in China, for example, it looks like one person controlling everybody, and in Russia, one person controlling everybody. I just wanted to bring that into perspective, because when I saw that, when I was looking at Moldova, it suddenly struck me that the Europe that I served in in the army in the 20th century, the border between the Russian-controlled part of Europe and the democratic part of Europe has moved 2,000 kilometers east. It is, at least for me, a mind-boggling realization that I should have had probably a long time ago. And it is the dividing line in the world that I think probably in the 21st century will ultimately lead to a major war. Now, who's going to win? I think Jake already st stated that. The bottom line to it is the autocracies of the world are dependent upon the democracies of the world to survive. The democracies of the world are not dependent upon the autocracies. So ultimately, we're in the same position as we were, in essence, at the beginning of World War II, where the Two countries that bridge war in the United States had no conceivable way they could defeat us. Anyway, go ahead. Now, from a different perspective, we have shown the degree or lack thereof, lack of dependence or dependence on China in the pandemic. When we had all the supply chain issues, some of those were local stuff that we were having trouble with. Some of that was just we couldn't get stuff from China. And if you recall all the backlog of shipping at the western ports and all of that, our inflation is a direct result 
to some extent of our dependence on imports and so on. But I just said, and this is important, 2022, we imported $536 billion worth of stuff from China. That's huge. People go, well, that's really, really big. We are spending about $840 billion on our military. So we imported less than our military budget of the United States from China as a country. Our entire country imported less than our government's military budget from China. It's still it's still the, the big place that we're getting stuff. We get a, we get a lot of stuff from Canada and from Mexico and from China. So just saying that the autocracies have put themselves in a position. This was a very clear strategy by Putin and by Xi to put themselves in a place where the Western world, the democracies, were dependent on these autocracies and therefore couldn't respond to any aggression elsewhere or based on whatever. You can't hurt us because you're depending on us for fill in the blank. And the world responded. Uh, the Western world responded. And the Western world is bigger now. I don't know where the line is between East and West. I don't know. I mean, we need to have like a North and South Pole. We need to have an East and West Pole. That would be nice. So we could say uh, anywhere, uh, any other direction from that is West. Um, but the result here is that we've shown, Europe has shown, no, we're not going to be dependent on autocracy. And the United States has shown, yep, we had a lot of our stuff put in, a lot of our eggs were sitting in that basket over there, and somebody just jostled the basket, so the eggs are getting moved. So the dependence that we had that was slowly building up, the, the water was slowly getting warmer, and we're like, oh, it's pretty comfy, oh, it's getting a little hot. We then started getting scalding, and we, the frog, have jumped out, uh, at least to some extent, and I hope we continue that move, as long as Xi and Putin say, we can do whatever we want, and you're going to buy from us anyway, we need to lessen how much, learn the lesson of how much we lessen how much we buy from them. How's that for repeating words? <laughs> Yeah, well, I think we're doing, I think China has done us a great favor in their mishandling of the COVID crisis. And I know it sounds kind of crazy. And in their saber rattling, we have woken up and realized that we cannot afford to be dependent upon China for strategic items. Does that mean we're woke? I think that means something different now. I think it means we have, we have awakened, which is slightly different than we woke. This isn't, this isn't woke culture. This is awoken culture. Both might be awake, but this way means something different. I would say awakened. But the, the, the point <laughs> is that there is this bright dividing line around the world. You say there's between East and West. It's philosophy. It's, it's a philosophical difference, and it really occurs. So we base our directions on philosophy. Yes, that is yes, the human experience. Absolutely. 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 But I, I don't think it hold necessarily... I have to orient myself toward that, which means East, by the way. So, so go ahead. <laughs> I think the, the primary thing that... You want to know where the division is between East and West. It's a thought difference. And it really is uh, the border of Russia, maybe include Belarus, which means beautiful Russia, as part of Russia. It's it, one of the other things I think we miss in, the, in our strategic view of the world is the fact that Russia is primarily an Asian country. It has a little bit of Russia, a little, the, the western tip of Russia is in Europe, but the huge majority of Russia is in Asia. And it is primarily an Asian and Eastern thought country. And that's hard 
for people to get their minds wrapped around it, it helps tremendously to, to actually back up and look at a picture of the globe and, and take a look at that. And that is this fundamental battle going on. It's going on at the economic level right now, primarily, although there's a, obviously some shooting going on in Ukraine, and defining how the world will look in the future because the two systems, as they grow, both sides have tremendous economic growth and tremendous uh, trade growth going on as technology changes and are interacting with the other systems. Um, and very frankly, the autocratic, autocratic systems are terrified. Why are they terrified? Because when people get the seed of democracy in there and they get the idea that they can rule themselves rather than have somebody in authority tell them what to do and what to think and what to read and control what they see, it is contagious. It is scary to autocracies, very frightening. It is the the world was autocratic exclusively prior to 1776. Today, it's a very different looking world. And the movement is made in one direction. And at some point along the way, the autocracy, the autocratic empires have lashed out before they fell. This is just one of those gigantic big picture things that maybe uh, we tend to lose sight of. Maybe it's not considered very important to somebody. What's important to them is how much the eggs were at the grocery store today. Right. But from an investment point of view and a long-term point of view when it comes to planning, it's important to realize that there's some big things moving about in the world that are going on in the world that uh, are going to affect our futures. Yeah. And, and I think being aware of the change that's occurring is pretty important. We, we really do live in interesting times. I mean, it's not like it wasn't interesting before, but it was an interesting stability. In the 1990s, early 1990s, we lived in interesting times. The whole world structure was changing. Who's part of the Soviet Union? Who isn't? Russia's going into horrible economic collapse. Um, pulling itself out of that and then eight years later doing it again. Uh, and so this concept of, of falling down and standing up and falling down and standing up in Russia till they got really proud again recently because their system has been fairly functional because of the trade that they're doing with Germany and with the rest of Europe. They're raising the standard of living. Just, just as an important side note, this is, a lot of people don't understand this about Russia because they consider Russia to be on the world stage as powerful as, as Germany or the United States based on past understandings. Russia's per capita income is tiny. That means each person's share of how much they make is very small. They're considered an, an emerging economy because most families don't have a car. I know that's a big thing, but that's a bragging right in Russia. If you're a young man with a car in your early 20s, it's a sign of extreme wealth. Not a little bit of wealth, but you are successful, you're up and coming. And that's today, or, or even before the invasion. And that's not true in Moscow. It's not true in the big cities. It's true across the majority of Russia. The majority of Russia is not a developed country. The, the amount of agriculture employment is still a significant portion of their population, their working population. In the United States, we're down to less than 
0.2% of our workforce involved in agriculture. Just think about that for a second. We're providing enough food, excess for ourselves. We're exporting it to the rest of the world. With such a tiny percentage of our population, at the beginning in 1900, 80%, 80% of our population was involved in agriculture. It's now 0.2%. In Russia, it's still significant in the tens, like 20% of the population is in agriculture. And that says something about what Russia is and what it's trying to hold on to. They were recently great, but they haven't kept up with the technological shifts and because it is an autocracy, a lot of the profitability coming from this booming economy that was existing in Russia didn't go to the people. It didn't go to the common people. It went to the autocrats. It went to the what, what in the 1900s were called robber barons in the United States, only they were kind of government appointed in Russia. It's, it's a feudal system if you think of Putin as the king and if you think of industries as dukedoms, where it's appointed and their kids can have it and their kids can have it, but if the head of state disagrees with it, he just takes it away and gives it to somebody else. So there's a feudal system, an autocratic feudal system in Russia, and there's an empire in China. It's not hard to look at this now. This is People think about communist China, and it's distorting a lot of people's worldview on what China is. China is not communism under anything Marx wrote. It's not, it's not the same. It is not that at all anymore. It is an empire. It is a bureaucracy. And if you look at how it's run, it's not that dissimilar. It's very similar to how it was run when the emperor was in charge. So it's we thought that we went through this big shift where communism came in and shifted us away from feudalism and democracy came and, and shifted us away from monarchies and feudalism and, and, and capitalism and communism were the competing theories. It's not competing theories anymore. It's just people trying to maintain power bases in China and in Russia, and it's the same human behavior that we've seen for millennia. So that's that's another little wrap-up there. The autocrats, that we say this is a new thing compared to over the last 30 years, it's really just an old thing that's come back. And so there's handles that we have in history to carry this in our mind. If we look at China and we continue to think that they're the communist Chinese, because that's the name of their political party, you're going to make bad decisions or misunderstand because they're not following communist tendencies, period. It's just not there. They're, they're, there's, the people are not getting wages from the government in the way that communism would do it. They're not, the communist government is not dictating who works where. It's not there. That's just not happening. So that's important, to, very important to understand about China. you got to change the paradigm. Because China, communist China is still called, it's still the Communist Party, it's the People's Party. It sounds like communism. It's not. And I think I've covered that enough. We're talking about the world stage a lot more than what's going on here. We've got a lot of stuff going on here, too. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake. Matt Uh This is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, 
as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program, it's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right, well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this in, on this station, fourteen hundred a.m. in Temple since nineteen ninety six. We've been doing this a long time, and. We haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do, do you need to tell us another disclosure? Yes. Information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think... Right. Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio management. And portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally, voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people move phone tree during the week at... 254-947-1111. You can reach that line toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning, and until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.